This is Rusty Reno here at First Things for another episode of the Editor's Desk where we talk to authors in contributed articles in recent issues of First Things Magazine. And I'm delighted to have with us today Algis Valiunas, who is the author of an essay on Guacamo Leopardi, the great Italian uh, poet. The title of the essay, Nihilism for the Iron Hearted. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You describe Leopardi as the greatest writer least known to English speakers. Very few people read Italian, or if they do read Italian, they read Italian to read Dante, and they never get around to Leopardi. I'm not sure just why it is he's he's so uh, out of favor. I mean, I mean the, he has standing in the Italian. You know, so if you're an Italian high school student, do you read Leopardi? Yes, you read him. So he's the Wordsworth of of uh, Italian letters. Is that fair? I mean, not in terms of substance, but rather he's one of these uh, great figures of modern Italian letters. He is a great figure. He's the great, the great Italian romantic, and yet he's not entirely a romantic. He he. Uh, has a lot, a lot to him of the the classical world, the world that Sophocles, Homer, and Pindar saw, as George Santayana wrote. And you, you note that as a as a young man, he was something of a of a, a linguistic genius. It seems, you know, uh, translating classical texts and writing books at age fourteen and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, he, what, what, he, what was he doing? You know, uh, I guess he was. It sounds like his parents wouldn't let him out of the house, and he spent an awful lot of time in his father's library. Uh, his father had a great library, twenty-five thousand volumes. Oh my goodness! Which he opened to the the town of Recanati when Giacomo was fourteen years old, and he opened it to Giacomo at the same time. And Giacomo had never been so happy before in his life. Uh, he found he thought the life that he was made for. Uh, and he became a an erudite philologist. Uh, uh, he he taught himself Greek after studying Latin with a with a priest. Uh, he taught himself English and German, and and uh, he went to town. But then, when he was sixteen, he discovered poetry, and that distracted him from his philology. And so, what he he was it, you you talk about the various translations. Uh, and I love the essay that he wrote, uh, an essay on the popular errors of the ancients. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was these popular errors. So this was mediating um, uh, ancient literature to a popular audience and, and so on. So what did he discover in poetry? I don't know. He, he said that, that uh, it was God who led him to it. And that was about the only mention of God that, that, uh, you find in his in his uh, statements or writings that uh, that uh, God saved him for poetry. He loved Homer, Virgil. Uh, started with the with the ancients, uh, and really educated himself uh, on that basis. So, kind of a classic trajectory of first honing his craft through translation and then writing his own poetry. 
Yes, yes. He was a, a translator first. And and uh, then he went to town. He he uh, became a a nature enthusiast. Uh, he he was quite like Wordsworth in that respect. Maybe that was the only respect in which he was like Wordsworth. And but he was unhappy in life. He was miserable, although he was he was happy for the years that he was he was studying philology and and uh, was was just starting out as a poet. But by the time he was 18 or 19 years old, he had developed a terrible scoliosis, a, a hump formed in his chest and on his back. He became a gobbo, a hunchback, which in Italy in particular was a, an especially nasty thing to be. Hmm. He thought that, that the kind of life that he felt he, he was cut out for, a life of, of uh, love, 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 excitement, uh, life, enthusiasm, was never going to be his. Uh, so he had he had not only the the burden of this this uh, really quite terrible affliction, which which killed him in the end. It it collapsed his heart and lungs. Uh, but he also was was uh, deprived of the life that he thought by rights was his. He fell in love with beautiful women, much to only, his. With, only with beautiful women. They had to be beautiful. <laughs> And it was not a requited love, I gather. No. The the love of his life was probably a woman named Fanny Targioni, a married woman uh, whom he met when he was in his late 20s. And, and uh, he courted her at the same time that his best friend, uh, Antonio Ranieri, was courting her. Ranieri was younger, was handsome. Uh, and Ranieri succeeded where, where Leopardi failed. And years, years later, uh, someone asked Fanny Targioni, well, why was it that, that, uh, that you didn't fall in love with this wonderful poet? And she said, my dear, he stank. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> so he was ill-starred uh, in, in life. He was miserable. He thought that... that uh, he thought that he had been deprived of the life that he should have had, and and uh, it was it was summed up by one of his literary enemies as as uh, there is no God because I am a hunchback. I am a hunchback because there is no God. <laughs> well, he and then you recount how the really if if the one decisive turn is the turn to poetry. Well, maybe you the discovery of the library, access to the library. And then the discovery of poetry, um, and then the harsh blows of fate, as he as he realizes that he's not going to find the happiness that he desires, and then he meets a, or he, he corresponds with a, a noted literary figure, much as Elder, who's a atheist and free thinker, and that seems to be the next turn in his life. Pietro Giordani. Uh... He wrote passionately to Giordani about how miserable he was in the town of Recanati, which had nothing beautiful, nothing intelligent to recommend it. Uh, he felt like a, a pearl on a dung heap there, he wrote. And, and uh, Giordani was sympathetic and, and uh, came to Recanati to, to visit Leopardi. Leopardi had never been out of the house by himself. He was 19 years old. My goodness. And when... when, when uh, 
Giordani came to town, Recanati went to the to uh, to meet him, uh, and this caused a scandal in the house, and an even greater scandal ensued when Recanati took him for a day trip to a town thirty miles away, and when he got back from that that trip. Uh, People said that he was utterly changed, that he had, he had gone from being a, a decent Catholic boy to being a, a free-thinking reprobate. I don't think it ever happened quite as quickly as all that, but, but this, this influence in his life was, was very strong. So the, the, the failure in love was compounded by, it seems like a very harsh treatment by his father for having fallen away from the faith. Yeah, his father was a was a tyrant. Uh, I think he loved his son, but but uh, couldn't stand the thought of his ever leaving. Uh, he was he he thought he thought that the the young Leopardi was a boor for cutting his meat with his fork, so that his so his father to remedy that would cut his meat the proper way for him until he was twenty seven years old. Did he live with his parents? Throughout his yes, life? he lived with his parents. He didn't live with them his whole life. He he uh, did travel some. Uh, in when by the time he was in his mid twenties, he spent five five months in Rome with with uh, an uncle and aunt of his, and he thought that he would find there the life that he wanted. And instead, he found that that he was despised, and so he despised in turn. Uh, he was he was ready to admire the the great Roman literary life, and instead he found it a pack of a pack of uh, wolves. Right. The right. Uh, yeah. The plus de change are plus de même chose when it comes to the literary world. I suppose <laughs> it's a very competitive uh, world with lots of grievances. The he in terms of his literary output, um, you 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 you. You, you report that he maintained a, a journal of sorts throughout his throughout his life uh, and it's it's massive um, and it it's it's um, it's kind of a commonplace book is that fair he, he wrote down his thoughts it wasn't yes. a it wasn't a, a diary or a memoir but rather a this and a that whatever came to his mind yeah, he called it the Zibaldone or Hodgepodge, and he wrote about about everything: his philological studies, his his uh, uh, home life, his his uh, uh, aspirations, his his desperation, and it it ran to a couple of thousand pages. I think it was it was originally over four thousand pages in manuscript, and the English edition, which just came out about ten years ago, is over two thousand pages long. Would you recommend it? I would recommend it if if you have if you have patience, <laughs> if you could get through something like that. Yes. I mean, is it Goethe's Dichtung und Wahrheit is a similar sort of. Uh, um, maybe hodgepodge is not the right word, but it also is a, a kind of uh, gathering of thoughts um, that repays, uh, certainly repays reading. And, and you think Cleopardi also, one could pick at this and put it by one's bedside and, and, and dip into it and come away with um, arresting phrases and, 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 and insights and episodes. 
Yes, I think it's I think it's well worth a well worth a look. Uh, and and I I wouldn't compare it with with Dichtung und Wahrheit. I I think that that's more of a, a typical autobiography. Well, this is random thoughts mm. and often mm. repeated thoughts, things that he would return to again and again. The main themes of his life, the misery of of human existence. Well, that's so reading reading the piece. I, I found myself thinking, was Leopardi? It sounds like there's an element of he's he's something of a Pascal in him, although all you get is the misery of man and yeah. <laughs> and not his grandeur. So Pascal without faith, so that kind of hard, um, um, uh, gimlet-eyed look at the realities of human existence and how how we're we're um, we're just sort of worms uh, as we wriggle our way through life. And not even um, glow worms, as Churchill called himself. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, or, he spared himself nothing. Uh, and he spared the world nothing. He hated and hated, uh, and he made some remarkably fine poetry out of the hatred. Uh, what would the, what what does the what what is the um, the enduring? So if, if a, an Italian young person is reading Leopardi to as a poet to think about what it means to write poetry, what what do they get? Is it is it that romantic? Um, directness, uh, spare, you know, kind of crystalline language rather than ornate language. I mean, that's what, in translation, I don't read Italian, but it seems to have that adamantine quality to it, as opposed to maybe earlier forms of poetry that relied on certain conceits in order to, um, you know, ornament language. Yes, it's, it's mostly very simple diction. The syntax is often very gnarled. It's hard to hard to construe sometimes, uh, but it, it's, it's democratic poetry by an aristocratic soul. That is, mm. he, he writes about the, the common experiences of, of uh, uh, ordinary people, and yet he filters it all through this uh, stoic sensibility, which looks down on uh, those who don't see the world as as uh, clearly as he does. I mean, I, I wonder if the poetry Pascal without faith and the other formulation I I thought of is Baudelaire without the sensuality of degradation. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's, he was. It, it it is it is more. Uh, uh, there there are no consolations. It seems he didn't believe in consolation. He thought that that was that was a mug's game. He wanted no part of it. Yeah, the great quote you provide there on that theme about how um, the hard truths, he says, this is Leopardi, at least provides strong men with the fierce satisfaction of seeing every mask torn from the hidden and mysterious cruelty of human destiny. Oof, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of... Is that... Although you end by suggesting otherwise, but my thought when I read that passage is that he represents what I would call a heroic nihilism. Yes. That life is meaningless, but at least I know it. He's a, he has a kind of mad pride in, in uh, being able to see through everything to the, the cold, desolate heart of it. But Nietzsche 
thought that 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 kind of coldness would give way to sort of a new Dionysian freedom where we could actually enjoy life as it is rather than rather than be tortured by illusions of transcendence. But he, he Leopardi didn't have that. <laughs> he didn't have that. that. That would that's a consolation he also refused. Well, he was glad that he had just had one life to live, unlike Nietzsche, who believed in the re eternal recurrence or claimed that he did. Uh, although Nietzsche, too, was was uh, not as courageous as his Ubermensch. He, he wrote in his in his notebooks, uh, I don't wish to live again. Uh, I, I have endured as long as I have because I have created. I created the Ubermensch who who uh, says yes to everything. And I want to say yes to everything, but ah, but ah. Hmm. I, I think about our own time, uh, another Italian, uh, Gianni Vattimo, who is a, a Italian philosopher, and I think articulates a very common view, which is a very different take on nihilism. And instead of a hard truth, it's a soft and generous truth. Um, because it releases us from the strain of having to strive for things. So, but also it's a gospel of peace. If nothing is worth fighting for, then nobody will fight. Uh, yeah, it's sort of John and, Lennon's Imagine, isn't it? Yes. Something like and, that. Uh, I, I, it's interesting. It's hard to know why people go one way or the other towards a, a kind of heroic nihilism or austere ascetic nihilism versus um Batimo's, i think more uh more, more uh, caressing <laughs> and and consoling um nihilism um i don't know if you have any thoughts on maybe it's just a different in a post-christian era the the if you're renouncing if there's no transcendence to renounce then it doesn't seem quite so big a deal. But for Leopardi, it was a big deal. Leopardi, uh, one of the last things he wrote was was uh, a hymn to Ahriman, the, the uh, Zoroastrian demiurge, the, the evil creator of the world. And he, he wrote that, that uh, I have been your most faithful apostle. Uh, don't punish me any more than you've punished me already. <laughs> His theodicy seems to be, uh, it, 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 he doesn't, well, because God doesn't exist, you don't curse God, <laughs> but rather a theodicy that, um, uh, uh, it's a kind of reality is to blame. Being is to blame. Uh, the yes, fact he, that exists. He wanted to uh, exonerate human beings of, of uh, any guilt for, the failure of the world. He he said it was nature who had blighted, blighted things uh, beyond repair, and human mm. beings shouldn't consider themselves res responsible. They were just innocent victims. Well, there is a bit of uh, Vatimo in that, I suppose. I guess, I guess, in the sense yeah. of release, as opposed to uh, there's a kind of relief there. I mean, all theodicies, I think, function as a way of softening the blows of fate and and um, giving us consolation in the face of evil and it is a odd nihilism is a funny consolation 
Um, but I think a lot of religious believers think that nihilism, they would think, like, why would anybody? I mean, what? It just seems like uh, awful. Um, and I think that Leopardi, party, right, there is an element to which it, this did serve to him, for him as a kind of a consolation, oddly, in spite of, in spite of all he says. I, I don't think of him as being a, essentially sure. a, a man consoled. I think he was mm. he was a hothead from beginning to end. You describe him as a metaphysical berserker, which I think yeah. is a beautiful phrase. <laughs> <laughs> and you got uh, Carlyle's term, a moral desperado, uh, which is also a, a wonderful um, characterization. Any sense of uh, any any sense of what? what you would, our listeners should take from this remarkable character, um, you know, towering literary figure. Don't grow up to be like him. I suppose that's <laughs> the... <laughs> well, uh, yes, um, uh, but for the grace of God go I, I suppose. Um, we should be grateful that, uh, um, that we, don't, uh, we don't find ourselves falling into such deep, depths of despair, I, I suppose. Yes. Um, well, thanks a lot for the piece. Um, and I, like many of readers, many English speaking readers, also uh, knew very little other than his name. And so I'm really grateful for, for learning. And I am um, very much enticed uh, to look at the, the Zibaldone and, yeah, and, you'll find it interesting. And there's mine there's it. everything there for everyone. Mm, very good. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me.